0: Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview, or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. So we're moving back to the book of John today. We're going to finish chapter 6 if you want to get your Bibles out. And, and turn there. We'll do some reading together. Uh, last time we left off, uh, Jesus is preaching to these crowds. This is the same crowd that he had fed a day earlier in the feeding of the 5,000. And uh, after feeding them, he had crossed the sea, did that walking on the water trick. And the next morning they got up and they're looking for him. They're trying to find Jesus. They don't know where he went. All the boats are gone. And uh, they end up commandeering a few boats. And Uh, that have come over to the shore and crossing the sea to find him. And they're looking uh, for Jesus. I think it's around Capernaum at this point. And and they find him, and he begins to teach them uh, as they've found him across the sea. Um, And Jesus points out as he begins teaching them, we covered this last week, but he points out that they're following him because he fed them. They're not following him because they believe he's a Messiah or because they believe his teachings are valuable. They're following him because they just are hoping for another free meal. Now, most of us haven't experienced a lot of food insecurity in our culture. I would imagine most of us probably don't really know what true hunger is. I, I don't know if I've told the story here before, but I know I've told it before. We have a missionary we work with in Kenya named Rogers uh, Audi, and he was here in Washington State and uh, seeing what life is like in Washington and. And he's a Kenyan national and someone thought, hey, you know what, let's go over and we'll serve a dinner at the community house. And you care for impoverished people in Kenya, we'll, we'll let you have an opportunity to help us care for impoverished people in Longview. And so he's over there serving dinner and he's been assigned to serve like the green beans or something that we would see as a less desirable food. And and he's just amazed that people who are hungry in America would come through a cafeteria line and say no to anything. And he got a lot of people turning him down on the green beans. And so I remember him telling me, there are no hungry people in America. There just aren't. There's nobody hungry here. And I said, well, you know, we would beg to differ. There are probably some people who are hungry, but but we don't know that kind of hunger. You know, the closest I've come to experiencing real hunger would be on like a a mission trip. Uh, And I don't mean I was starving on a mission trip, but you spend a month eating food that you don't wanna eat, eating weird food. And, and you feel something different in your relationship with food than you do in a normal everyday when you would. Uh, and so we were, uh, I was in Botswana, this was in my uh, late teenage years, I was in Botswana for about a month and we had uh, a, a ration of oatmeal every morning and, uh, and then a poloni sandwich, one bologna sandwich for lunch. I'd come down in high school, I was eating four ham sandwiches for lunch. So I went from four ham sandwiches to a poloni sandwich Polony is something I hope you never have to eat, and and then for dinner we had beans and rice. And our, our mission team was really trying to save s- some money because the the Wyman base needed a new TV for the guest speakers room, and so we were we were eating we were eating really really thin to save money for the for that. Anyhow, um, that may or may not be what really happened, but I I don't know. I haven't dove into that because it would just leave me embittered. But. Um, after a month of that, you know, the conversations on the team turned to what would I love to eat other than a poloni sandwich? And no one's saying things like a chef salad or a healthy protein shake or anything like that. It's like it's I want a pizza. I want a cheeseburger. I want a big steak. And I know I know some of you who are more health conscious in your diet are thinking, oh, I would never do that. I would be telling them how badly I want a bean salad right now. Um, But I would submit to you that you've never really been that hungry. Uh, When you live for a period of time in a certain state or in a certain context, it really changes, it really begins to shape the state of your mind and your understanding of the world, and you begin to hunger for different things. Your ability to cope with or to then live in suddenly a dramatically different context can, can really be impacted by that. And so, I mean, you could imagine when you've, when you, If you've gone for, for a month of eating little and maybe arguably more healthy food, if you just headed over to Izzy's and chowed down on everything that was there, which there's nothing over at Izzy's right now. It's been empty for a couple of years. Uh, but you'd be really, really sick. And I think part of what Jesus is teaching in John chapter 6 is getting to is revealing the condition of the hearts of these Jewish multitudes who are following them. They're hungry for loaves and fishes, but they aren't really hungry for the eternal kingdom that God is establishing through Jesus Christ. These first century Jewish people have been living their entire lives in a certain context, in a certain state. They've been living as conquered people. They've been living under Roman rule. They're living in a food-scarce society. And this has left them really hungry for things other than the kingdom of God. We left things off in verse 33 a couple of years ago. We'll pick it up there. John chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, The bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so they say to Jesus, Sir, always give us this bread. That bread of God, it sounds pretty good to me. Can we have it? And Jesus declares, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I just want you to plant that phrase in your mind. Remember how Jesus says that. Whoever comes to me, whoever believes in me, using those relational words is is important. So hold on to that thought as we continue reading. He continues in verse 36. He says, but I've told you, and you've seen me, and you still don't believe. But all those the Father that gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he's given me, but will raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. They come to him, they're asking for bread to eat. He says, I'm the bread of life that comes down, or there's bread of life that comes down from heaven, and God wants to give you to eat, and they're asking the wrong questions, but he's giving them the right answer again. He's turning them towards this great need that exists inside of their souls. This idea that, uh, that hangs over all of humanity, that death is the great enemy of humankind and jesus is saying i there's a a father in heaven whose will is that anyone who would look to the son and believe in him would have this eternal life would no longer be afraid of the great enemy of humanity there's this catchphrase that we have at renewal we say that jesus is for everyone and this phrase was meant to communicate at least in part that everyone really needs jesus and the question on that being when we were starting the church the question came up How do you convince people with full bellies that they really need Jesus? How do you convince a society that hasn't missed a meal in their entire lives, that has a roof over their head every night, that they need Jesus? How do you convince people who live on a a standard of living that's akin to ancient royalty, right? I mean, you had... Rulers who had to conquer entire empires just so that they could sleep on a bed that probably wasn't as nice as the one that you get to sleep on every night. Did you take a hot shower last week? Did you eat something that someone else prepared for you? Did you sleep on a mattress? You are royalty. But even with these comforts and these full bellings, we really believe at renewal that there is this unmet need deep inside every person's soul, this void that only Jesus can fill. And it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're an ancient person or a modern person. Jesus really is for everyone. And the Father's will is that everyone who would look to Jesus would have eternal life. And to long for this eternal life, to hunger and thirst for righteousness, we really believe that's what's meant to be the greatest appetite of the human heart. But... In a broken and fallen world, we often find our appetites being misdirected towards other things. This broken world and and sometimes the choices that we make actually train ourselves to hunger after other things. Jesus says these words to them, and then the Jews at this in verse 41, they begin to grumble about him. He said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They say, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? The crowd says, give us some bread to eat. Jesus says, you need eternal life. The crowd says, how dare he say this, these kinds of things? Who does this guy think he is? They're they're grumbling tummies, and they have this sneaking suspicion. Oh, I don't think we're going to actually get fed today. There's going to be no loaves and fishes today, and their perspective on Jesus, the man that they crossed the sea to find, is really soured by this. He isn't meeting their expectations. So they're souring on him very, very fast. Now, I do think that it's, it's probably offensively presumptuous to hand a hungry person something like a Christian tract, right? That doesn't seem right. Yet, at the same time, if that's, Offensively presumptuous, it's really tragically foolish to reject the message of God simply because it doesn't come in the preferred packaging that you desire. You know, people who will say things like, well, I like it when Christians feed me, but I wish they'd just cool it with the whole Jesus stuff. It's like, this is our life. This is the truth. This is a thing of value that we feel we really have to share with the world. It's a shame when people will reject truth just because it's not what you're hoping for Jesus says stop grumbling amongst yourselves no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up on the last day it's written in the prophets they will be taught by God this passage of scripture is is one of those things that I thought man how am I going to talk about this when we get there because it talks about no one coming unless the father draws them and that feels like we're starting to wade into the weeds if predestined salvation versus free will and and christians haven't been able to agree on that for a couple thousand years i don't want to talk about things that christians haven't been able to agree on for a couple thousand years and so uh, Jesus' word saved me it saved me because he says on the heels of that no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them i'll raise them up on the last day he says it's written in the prophets they'll be taught by god And one of the things that I'm learning to do when I read the New Testament now is pay attention when it quotes the Old Testament and stop, full stop. And fully stopping can be a bit of a frustrating venture in the book of John. You have all these lengthy passages and lots of dialogue. It's particularly difficult to follow along with when someone's reading it during a teaching time at church. And I think to myself, I don't have time to stop and get into this, but you really should. Because you're possibly wasting your time if you just gloss over these moments when Jesus quotes the Old Testament. He's referencing this passage from the book of Isaiah to a group of people to give them context for their words. They're really struggling to understand what Jesus is saying in this lengthy dialogue. And the, the reference he gives them is the book of Isaiah. And if we're struggling to really understand what he's meaning to say... Maybe we should take a clue from this context he's trying to give. So, this line's from the 54th chapter of Isaiah. The latter portion of the book of Isaiah contains prophecies that came to the people of God decades after they've been living in exile. And these prophecies were meant to speak to a hopeless and conquered people about the redemption and the triumph and the return to the purposes of God for them. The word of the Lord is coming to people who are in captivity and is proclaiming that there's going to be freedom and restoration to the land that God had promised them and a whole new reality for them. And before we jump into chapter 54, you should know that it immediately follows chapter number 53. Imagine that. Isaiah 53 is a pretty famous passage of scripture that describes God's suffering servant. The hero who's going to come and bear the sins of all the people and make himself a sin offering. The one who's going to make the many righteous through his suffering. And then through his work in chapter 54, keep in mind that when this was originally written on the parchment, there was no chapter 53 than chapter 54. We just have a profile painting of a suffering servant of God who's going to usher in a new reality through this sin offering he's going to make of himself. And in 54, we have a description of this new reality, of God's redemptive restoration of the people. 54, the Lord speaks a word of encouragement to the people. Forget your sufferings. Forget your shame. Forget your guilt. Through this work of this suffering servant, God is ushering in a brand new reality. The the scripture, the chapter uses... uh, 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 an image of a barren woman that symbolizes Israel in captivity. And this barren woman is going to be given children and descendants who are going to possess all of the nations. And and the creator God is going to be her husband and a redeemer. And he's going to call her back to herself. Although for a period of time, she was exiled. For a period of time, she was sent away. He disciplined her. That time is over now. And through this, Work of this suffering servant. She's going to come back to him. He's going to be her, her husband. He's going to protect her. No weapon formed against her is going to prosper. And God is going to give her children. And then God is going to teach her children himself. God is going to raise her children himself. I'm, uh, I have two teenagers and, and a 10-year-old who's going on about 15 and, and I think, man, wouldn't that be great if God would just raise these, teach these kids for me himself? This is a picture of paradise. That God would take this off my hands. And I really think what God is trying to accomplish through these prophetic claims in the scriptures is he's attempting to whet his people's appetite for the true food of what he's going to do one day. At this period of time, they've been in exile for several decades. They, they've been eating the bread of Babylon for some time. They, they can't even understand what life would be like. They can't even imagine what life would be like. Back in the land, back in the, in the homeland, back in the promised land, this place that God's preparing for them. So you have this string of prophecies that are delivered uh, prior to the return of, to Jerusalem, the rebuilding that happens in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, you have these prophecies that are meant to encourage these exiled people that there's more to life than Babylon. These later chapters in Isaiah are trying to prepare an exiled and a conquered people for what God is about to do. People who've lived their life in a certain oppressive context are often not equipped for a dramatic shift or change in that think of the struggles that some people have transitioning from maybe a lengthy military life into a civilian life or struggling going from incarceration to freedom or struggling going from one nation into another a vastly different culture and people struggle in those kinds of things at times they say things like I just want to go back to Egypt wasn't that great when we were all slaves this new context living by the hand of God in the wilderness is strange and different to us. But God has a plan for them. There's a future and a hope for Him. And they have a destiny that's greater than what they're living today. I think Jesus is referencing this specific part of their Hebrew Scriptures to this crowd in that day because they are struggling with the same problem. If you think about it, the Gospel is a story about God's suffering servant who comes to an exiled and conquered people and is inviting them to live in a new reality. And all of humanity is bound together being exiled from the garden, the place where humanity dwelled with God, in fellowship with God. And all of humanity is bound together by this experience of living in a dark and oppressive and broken world. And all of our appetites have been shaped by that. And the question is, when the new reality is really presented to us, are we really going to hunger for it? Or are we going to hunger for different things? Jesus continues saying to the crowd in verse 47, he says, Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the worldliness. And yet they died. Again, the people who are coming to Jesus are looking for a meal ticket. And the reality is you can eat well every day of your life. You're still going to die one day. There's still this great enemy death who is lurking over humanity, ready to win at some point. Jesus says, but here is the bread that comes down from heaven which anyone could eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Remember, you're supposed to to keep in mind what Jesus was saying earlier, where he's he's talking about uh, believing and coming to him. And then now the language is different, right? Now he's talking about eating his flesh. Uh, This is not relational language. And it's not cannibalistic language either, though. I want you to settle down just a little bit for that. It's sacrificial language. Understanding this, again, in context, makes more sense. And, and we'll get there. The, the Jews hear him say this, though, and they begin to argue amongst themselves sharply. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? This sounds very offensive to them. And Jesus says to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. If you just take those words on the surface there and remove them from culture, this who wouldn't be offended by this, right? I mean, what would you do? Imagine you have no background in Christianity, and you came in and this is the text that they're preaching on today eating flesh and drinking blood you would, you would, this is a cult you'd be slowly scooting your your chair toward the back door ready to escape without anyone noticing because god knows what they would do if they noticed you might become the sacrifice who wouldn't be put off by this but remember the context that jesus is talking about remember that he turned our attention to the prophet isaiah He reminded us of this suffering servant who was going to be a sacrifice. And and those of us with a good first century education in this Hebrew scriptures are, are meant to be connecting the dots here. We're meant to be seeing connections here. Oh, okay. He's not just the prophet to feed us, to bring us bread every day. There's a connection between him and this suffering servant. And now he's talking about eating flesh. And that might sound really strange to us, but these people were used to a sacrificial meal. Their religious customs meant they would bring the animal sacrifices to the temple for the priests to offer. And then they don't just offer the animal and throw it away. No, this is a food scarce society. So you offer the sacrifice, and then you share the animal as a meal. A sacrificial meal is a part of the sacrificial system. The priest gets their part. The family gets their part. Everyone sits down together and they share a meal together. Jesus is, is speaking to these people about this. And he's saying to these people who are used to eating sacrificial meals where the offerings that they bring become the meal that's shared with the priest, I I don't think he's talking about cannibalism. He's talking about salvation. And he's saying to them, to these people who are, are conquered and exiled, he's saying to them, connect the dots and see what I'm doing right now. See this new reality that God is ushering in. I am the one who was promised. I'm the one who's going to suffer, according to Isaiah 53. And I'm going to offer up my own life, my own body as a sacrifice for the people. And I'm going to usher in the new reality of Isaiah 54, where God marries his people and defends them forever, raises their children. He says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Thank goodness. A return to relational language. And I don't know exactly why he makes it so hard for them to understand. But I do wonder when I ask the question, why did he turn and start? Is he intentionally trying to sound cannibalistic here? I do think when I ask that question, I wonder if they were asking the same question then. Or if they had enough cultural understanding that they didn't even ask it. And so here I am 2,000 years ago demanding that the Bible answer questions that nobody in that day would have ever even asked. What a silly thing. What a silly thing for me to do. Anyhow, he really switches gears back to relational language now. He says, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from the world. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said all this while he was teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. He says, this is the new reality where those who share in the body and the blood of christ need not fear death this is a story told in the scroll of isaiah and this is a story told throughout the scriptures and this is the story that we embrace as true here today that sin and death entered the world through one man's disobedience but that eternal life has come into our world through one man's sacrificial obedience We really believe that God is the redeemer of his people, that he's giving himself to us like a groom gives himself to the bride. And he promises to forgive us, no longer counting our sins against us. And he's going to raise us and he's going to teach our children. Jesus said to them earlier, don't work for food that perishes, but work for the bread that that uh, sorry, don't work for food that perishes. Don't work for bread that leaves you hungry tomorrow, but come and eat the true bread that comes down from heaven and gives life. To the world. We can see the crowd really struggling with that reality. Uh, they just wanted a free lunch. They're not so sure about eternal life. Um, they're not so sure that they have any appetite for the kingdom that God, that Jesus is calling them toward. And while the crowd is struggling to find their appetite for the true bread, I really believe that the Spirit wants to invite each one of us to find our true appetite. ...for this bread of God today. We have an opportunity to eat and to drink... ...to receive what God has done for us today. We have an opportunity to be challenged... ...in our appetites today. I was thinking about chapter 6 and this crowd... ...and as we're wrapping it up and getting ready to move on... uh, ...I guess we're actually wrapping it up next week. but (laughs) We'll be moving on to chapter 7 eventually... I was thinking about the things that we give our energy and our time to, you know, the things that we're willing to commandeer a boat and cross the sea for. For These people, they were willing to do it for a lunch. Uh, You know, what are, what are you willing to cross the sea for? What are you looking for? What are you willing to, what kind of, how hard are you willing to work for food that doesn't perish? We're going to turn to the Lord's table in a minute, but um, my family's not here today. They're all on uh, we're spending the holiday weekend in Seaside with my cousin, who has a relative with a condo there. And um, and when she when my cousin initially texted me and said, "Hey, we've got a condo for the weekend. Would you like to come and stay for free?" I mean, usually you have James Dieter at for free, uh, but I was a little torn on it because we already had plans to be out of town next weekend because we have a basketball tournament. And you know, when you only have to work one day a week, you really got to show up for your work day. And so, um, so I, I thought, well, no, we'd really love to still go, and I'll just, I'll just get up and drive back from the beach. That's no big deal. And so I was driving back this morning, and it's really beautiful to be up driving earlier on a Sunday morning. There's no traffic, and, and it, it, the sun was, was kind of out. It hadn't really started raining yet. Uh, actually, it looks nice out there right now. Um, but I was thinking to myself, you know what? I would make this drive every Sunday. Even if I lived at the beach, which would be a dream, it would be a real dream. I don't know if I could still work here and come in every day, but I could certainly worship here and come back once a week. I thought, man, these guys are worth it. I would drive an hour and a half to go to church with these guys every week. I totally would. You guys are 100% worth it. And, um, and I just think about the kinds of things that can stop us from engaging in fellowship with the people of God, that can stop us from participating in the eternal kingdom because it's just too heavy or it's just too much work or or our appetites are just for other things and um and i just want to challenge you guys to uh, to count the cost to consider this week what kinds of things you're willing to work for uh we're gonna turn our attention to the table we don't have any time for discussion well i i actually we maybe would but we're not going to because i didn't prepare any questions because i didn't think we would have any time for discussion Um, But we'll just get done a little bit early. That'll be fine. Uh, The act of coming to eat at the Lord's table is also an act of surrender of sorts. The Apostle Paul uh, said that in sharing the cup of the Lord, in, in sharing the loaf of the Lord, that we're proclaiming the Lord's sacrifice. We're proclaiming his death, death until he returns I think in some ways when we approach the table for communion every week, it's meant to be an act of embracing and surrendering to this truth. It's an act of surrendering our appetites for other things, our appetite for other foods and saying this bread, this cup, this body, this blood is what I need to be eating this week. And and if I can just fill up, on the body and the blood of Christ. If I, if I can just find satisfaction in that. I, I do wonder at times how much temptation would ever have a hold on us. This might, This might in some ways raise the importance of even driving an hour and a half. To make sure that you're in the place to fill up on the presence of God. There's a lot of conversations in, in church circles and pastors that I meet with and talk with. We're all talking about what does the future of a church look like? And especially when the pandemic first hit, people just went all in on the uh, digital experience, right? Um, and you began to see it. And some of you saw it. And some of you saw it in, in people that you know and love where, where people began to say, you know what, actually, staying home and watching a YouTube channel in my pajamas, uh, the music's better the preaching's better, the company's better, the chairs are better. Why would I ever change this? Why would I ever gather with people again? And some people went that route. And although for a time it was necessary to to have space and distancing and all of that, there's something that can only be gathered when you really begin to live life together. And I really believe the beginning point of living life together is at least... Worshipping together, starting with that. And that can be costly. It can be costly to gather. It can be costly to be in relationship with people. I mean, any of you who have walked into church know that there's people who hurt your feelings at times. There's people who aren't considerate. There's people who don't understand at times. There's difficulties in walking together. Sometimes the drive is too far. Sometimes the meetings aren't happening at a convenient time. But how far are you willing to go to eat at the Lord's table, to receive the bread and the cup, to share in the fellowship? I really think when we approach the table, we are surrendering all of these other appetites and all of these other anxieties. We're surrendering it for the one true food. That God says we need. And so as we sing another song. And as we come to the table today. I just want to encourage you to take some time to do that. At the table. Come up and tear off a piece of the bread. And dip it in the cup. And and then just acknowledge in a moment of quiet prayer. With maybe others who are gathered with you. or, Or at the table on your own. acknowledge in a moment of quiet prayer. Lord this is the true food. This is the true drink. This is all that is needed. This is the pearl of great price. It's worth trading everything else for. This is the thing that's worth everything that I have. This is the one that's worth forsaking all others. This is the place that's worth driving great distances Lord, we just, we just confess that our perspective has been shaped by years of exile, by years of oppression. Our imagination has been caged by years of sin. We just need to be set free today. And so we thank you that you have set a table for us that is prepared with the finest of foods, the best of drink. And we thank you that you have promised that those who would come and eat from this table will have eternal life. As we come to your table today, Lord. May each one of us eat our fill. May each one of us find satisfaction and contentment in the food you've prepared for us. May each one of us be restored and redeemed by you, brought back into fellowship with you, to live in the kingdom we were created to live in. We just thank you. We humbly and gratefully receive your body and your blood today.